Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. Uh, I'm Tom Maluli. I'm here with Brendan Maluli. And uh, we were just talking about the benefits of Rook Coffee. Yeah. Which is uh, local here in New Jersey. Yeah, um, my, my favorite coffee place. Look, coffee is coffee, but uh, they are number one in my book. I don't know what they do, but it's smooth and uh, I... I Definitely get a little jolt from it, which is nice. And uh, they've got T-shirts and bumper stickers, and yeah, all I've got kinds a magnet things. on my car, and I wear their their shirt uh, out and about. So, Brendan, to steal a line from uh, Meet the Fockers, you're a homeowner, right? <laughs> I am. So, story in Market Watch uh, this week. Uh, the title was Renters. This is how many years it takes to save up for a down payment on a home. Basically, if you're thinking about buying a home in San Jose, California, don't. <laughs> Just don't. Yeah, you can so, buy like a shed for a million dollars, I think. It's it's out of whack. But a new report from Zillow said that if you're looking to put 20% down on the median value home in the United States, which is $216,000, to put 20% down, most people, it would take them about 77 months or about six and a half years to build that 20% down. Right. And so, I, I mean, we're working with averages here. So like, you know, we're assuming that that, that home price is, for example, I know that that's not really going to get you much here in our area in New Jersey or out in California. Uh, we're, you know, we're also kind of working with averages uh, in the sense of, I guess, what they're assuming people are able to save. Because if you make a lot of money, you could you could save, like if you're trying to save 40000 to put down uh, 20% on a $200,000 house, then... Um, I mean, you, you could do that easily if you make $250,000 sure. a year. But if you make $50,000 a year, different story. I mean, And that's exactly where this story was coming from because they sh they used the national median income, okay, which was a, a, a little over $56,000. Right. Okay. It's, it's, it's going to take a while. That makes total sense. Right. Yeah. And if, uh, if you're renting and rent is coming in somewhere between, you know, it's, let's say for a lot of people, it's maybe between 20 and 30% of their income goes towards like housing uh, and expenses. So if you're spending that on something like rent and and then you're working with what's left over to, you know, buy groceries and pay for other things like necessities uh, and then you're trying to save not only for a down payment, but maybe uh, retirement or school for your kids. I mean, yeah, it's, it's you, a lot. And it could be a small amount that you end up being able to set aside each month for uh, a down payment, and and if you're only setting aside a few hundred dollars a month, it's going to take you a while to save forty thousand dollars. Yeah, the financial planner in me says there's probably an article out there that says you should probably you should, you should probably skip the four four dollar lattes at Rook Coffee yeah, or maybe. Starbucks or wherever. <laughs> um, you know, those are we see them crop up every couple of weeks online with the different websites that we go to, but. Is there really, we're getting a little off topic, but is that is that really something that is going to add up? Is that going to be significant? Maybe not if we're just talking about like a cup of coffee every day, but it's going to be different for everybody. I think the best way to do it is to kind of like look at your spending and then break it down into categories in terms of where your money's going. And sometimes maybe uh, you, you do that exercise and, and maybe for some people it is cutting out like these frivolous discretionary things we're spending money on and, and maybe that does make a dent depending on how much somebody spends but for other people maybe that's not the case um you know, i'm just doing numbers in the back of my head if uh if you spend four bucks on like coffee and a donut uh, or every whatever day, yeah. every day every day going to work i mean that's that's a thousand dollars in a year 
I don't know if that would really help me get towards my retirement goals or saving money for a house, but it's a it's a, a healthy dent on a vacation. Those are the choices you have to make. It's like, do I want coffee and a donut every day or do I want to go on vacation later this year? Yeah. And you can approach it that way in the sense where maybe you eliminate an, ex- an expense and, and go on vacation rather than I think what uh, a lot of people might do, which is to go on the vacation anyway, but like put it on the credit card. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I well, think they're just, getting points, right? <laughs> well, maybe, <laughs> uh, but it's, I don't know. Like only, only the individual can, can look at something like they're spending and make conscious decisions about how they can change it. Because like, I mean, it's, it's not my job or anybody else's job to tell you what is or isn't important to spend your money on. Like you earn the money, you spend it on what you want, but just being aware of where it's all going, I think, I think is a step that if you take that just to know where your money's going, you're, you're ahead of a lot of other people because most people Walk don't want to do it or they want to be blind because it's easier to not know like what percentage of their take home pay goes to like coffee and a donut every week, because that's like painful to find out when you add it up. One of uh, one of the early slogans that I tried for Maluli Asset when the business started years ago <clears throat> was taking the lampshade off an investor, you know, one investor at a time. Hmm. Um, that didn't really go over very well. No, but, well, like it's tough because it's, it's true, but like at, you're kind of like making the person feel as if like they're, they're inferior. Nobody wants to feel like dumb, you know? right? So. It's, but it's it, but there is a certain amount of lampshades being worn in the business, and it's not necessarily always the individual investor. Sometimes it's the advisor mm-hmm. who wears a lampshade on their head, and they just won't open their mind to looking at other things or being receptive to the idea that sometimes in the business, things can change. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Another article that was in the Wall Street Journal recently was the investor fever for passive funds is cooling in 2018. Again, talking about changing people's thought patterns about active and passive, I've seen a gigantic shift. There was no passive investing when I got started in the business in the 80s. There, was, there wasn't any. It was all active. I didn't know anything else. Uh, you, you know, you bought uh, Peter Lynch, uh, who ran the Magellan Fund. I mean, you, you bought all of these guys. You bought them. You bought these funds because of their track record. Now it is completely the opposite. Yeah, I think that the focus more, and people get caught up in like what is active or passive, but really the difference in terms of where the dollars are going, I think, is just like low cost versus high cost and systematic versus discretionary. So like you want cheap funds that are systematic. So you want to pay a low cost, obviously, and you want to know what you're getting. Right. And that's the difference is that where we've come from, discretionary stock pickers in an active mutual fund wrapper that's more expensive and less tax efficient than what you can get now in either an ETF 
or an index fund. And whether or not index means market capitalization weighted or something different, I don't think we even need to get into because I don't think that's the, I think that's missing the point. Right. I think that's really, that's the shift in, in tastes in terms of what advisors are looking for to put their clients into now and what a lot of individual investors who do a little bit of digging are looking for too. And I don't, so, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> so the story in the journal talks about how net inflows, this was from uh, information that they got from Morningstar, that net inflows into U.S. mutual funds and ETFs uh, dropped to three, not by, but dropped to a level of $3.4 billion in June. That's just the money that came in in June. Still a pretty large number, right. but that was the lowest amount of new monthly money for these funds since 2014, so almost four years. Uh, for the first six months of 2018, inflows into passive-type investments were down 44% compared with the same period a year ago. So is it because they're losing favor or is it because a lot of money that was going to move has moved? We don't get that answer from yeah, the article. Sure. Like, like, does it necessarily mean like the drop that you just stated, the 44% year over year or whatever it is, does that mean that that money is going back into active mutual funds or is it just a drop in inflows that could, I don't know, like you, there could be tons of reasons for that. Just sure. less people with money to put to work. I don't really know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't know. People, I mean, uh, looking for yield now instead because yeah, yields are starting to come up. Right. Like so, maybe they're keeping their money at the bank or in like a CD or right. something that we're not seeing inflows in. I don't know. I'm, I'm not really sure. But this whole active versus passive funds, I swear, Brendan, sometimes we could do an entire podcast just talking about that. Hmm. One of the things when I get, uh, pulled into these rabbit holes on Twitter, following the discussions back and forth with comments about active versus passive, I would love to just put out a poll. There's no right answer to this question that I'm going to pose, but I would just love to see the responses from everybody on Twitter. And the question would be, would you consider Warren Buffett to be an active or a passive investor? Right. I think and a lot of those conversations that happen on Twitter end up being just people talking past each other because they don't define active and passive as the same thing. So it's it's tough because like, what do you mean by active? Do you mean active in the sense that somebody's picking stocks? Uh, is it that? Is that discretionary active, like the active mutual fund? Or do you mean like somebody who is trying to like time the market? Right. Or both, right? Or one or the other, or is it like, something is that it? is just not married to an index considered an active? Right. Yeah. Like, is it is it anything that isn't market capitalization weighted? Like, is that it? Like, I don't know, and I don't think there are right or wrong answers, and that's why I think that these discussions just like persist because people define active and passive as different things. So if you're not if you're not talking about the same thing as somebody else, it's it becomes easy to think that you're disagreeing when in reality you may not be or you may you may be to such a degree that is pretty much irrelevant. I think a better discussion is kind of what you were alluding to earlier, you know, high cost active management versus a low cost uh, something tied to an index. Mm -hmm. uh, and, I, and I think that is really more 
a more germane discussion today. Is it worth it to pay uh, an individual asset manager to try and beat an index when you know we've seen Re results haven't been great? Yeah, we've seen those results. They haven't been that great. Is it worth it to pay extra for that when you can just buy the index? Right. It depends. It depends too. Like what what exposure are you getting from this discretionary manager? Like. And in a lot of cases, it's an expensive wrapper for them to like pretty much mirror their index anyway because they're so afraid to like lose to it by a big degree. So they don't even make these big active bets. So like, if you decide you you want active exposure, like you want a large cap value manager for your portfolio, you think it's a fit, then you should make sure that you're paying for somebody who's actually going to make those bets in such a way that it makes sense for you. Like you want true active exposure. You don't want this closet index exposure that you're just paying more and getting nothing for. Right. You might as well just own the index at that point or like Vanguard value fund. But if you're going to find a, if you're going to find an actual person who's going to do what they say they do in a concentrated way and make, make the kind of bets that you want to see them making and show you what their process is. So you understand the exposure you're getting, maybe that, and that's fine. I have a problem with that. Yeah. But most of the time, people don't because a lot of these funds are are crap, quite frankly. So they want the index instead because at least it's cheap and they know what they're getting. Right. To be clear to our listeners, a lot of times they'll hear the term the index and they'll automatically think the S&P 500 index. And that's not necessarily the case. In fact, Eric Balkunis, who we know from Bloomberg, uh, has pointed out several times that there is probably a fair amount of active money that is going in and out of SPY, which is the ETF for the S&P 500. But there are more and more indices being created every day that can uh, you can build ETFs off of. Uh, I, I think the problem is they're running out of indices. I think it, I think it's kind of silly at this point too to just like like everything is an index now. So like it doesn't it doesn't even mean something is in my opinion it doesn't mean something is passive because it's an index. Like if it's an index that weights things by momentum, it's not I think passive means like market cap weighted plain vanilla index. Like that is what an index is to me. Uh, yeah. but that's my definition of it. Like some of the, some people would disagree and like that's that's fine. I don't I don't think it matters. Right. You just want to understand what exposure you're getting, know what you're paying for it, and that's how you can decide whether or not it makes sense to allocate to or not. Good point. The headlines that we're seeing the last day or two, now that we've moved out of the second quarter and into the third quarter, now companies are going to start reporting their earnings. Right. Uh, so I saw several articles over the last week here about uh, the second quarter earnings uh, and basically looking at like like first quarter earnings were very strong they were up 26% uh over the trailing 12 so like they they'd increased and that's that's pretty significant uh in terms of an increase but people were looking at like like second quarter earnings are expected to be strong but maybe not as strong as the first quarter so like is that is that good uh are they going to be i mean they're still positive so that's a good thing but is it is it going to be bad because they're not going to exceed the first quarter number? Right. Like, how are people going to react to it? And that's more what matters. Uh, what, people are trying to look at this like, are the second quarter earnings going to be good enough to break us out of this range that we've seen the market uh, back and forth in since 
basically like the end of January. Right. So um, so to basically recap what you're saying is first quarter earnings were up 26%. Stocks responded because they had great earnings. So people either knew it or bid them up uh, as we went to a 26% earnings gain on average. Now, the second quarter numbers are projected to be up 20%. Again, not as good, hmm. but is it good enough to surpass the surpass the expectations that people in the market have i don't know because like like the first quarter earnings were really good and the market really hasn't gone much of anywhere this year so, so like, explain it, to me yeah we we had really great earnings and the market kind of has laid an egg in the first six months and yet i've seen plenty of periods over my career where the market uh, companies in general have had very little in terms of earnings to show, but they're coming out of a period of losses. And so the prior quarters were losses, so these numbers look great compared yeah. to, hey, no more future losses, let's move on. Uh, the, the way I like to, to pose it is, um, you know, we're, we're gonna get second quarter numbers here like very soon. What if we had the, four, the third and fourth quarter numbers already too? Uh, and we were going to use that information to predict where the market ends the year. Would we be able to? Like, would that be enough information for us to make a good forecast, or would we not know? Well, I still, think, I think that's when when we have the numbers. That's when people say, "Well, the market goes up and down based on interest rates." Yeah, yeah, right. Like you change the story, and it's like, well, <laughs> right. we don't have all the numbers we need, even though we have these numbers. Right. But just point being that, like, we could have these earnings numbers for the third and fourth quarter, and they could look good or bad, and so like we could make. A positive or negative assumption based upon that, like where the market is headed because yeah. of those numbers, and we could be totally freaking wrong. Right. Now, we were able to identify two stories side by side in the Wall Street Journal that had conflicting information basically on the same topic, but you dug a little further and came up with an article from Jason Zweig. Yeah, that- we were talking about earnings, and and then Jason put out this article today. Uh, I look forward to his his column. I think every Friday is the day that it comes out. So, so before we turn the mic on uh, for our listeners, what we were saying, I did not know about this article from Jason Zweig, and I said to Brendan that, you know, the whole idea of the earnings release is only good for a brief moment or two and then people are like yeah but what did they say about the next quarter like yeah. it's a these guys that live okay. guys and gals that live on these earnings releases they're crack addicts yeah and they, they yeah they need a bigger jolt for the next okay we got that number okay great what's the next number going to be like is are the numbers going to be good for next quarter what did they say about the future right and then that's exactly basically Jason's why let off his article that was about earning surprises by saying what matters to a stock price is not how much profit the company earns, but how much it earns relative to what the market was expecting. Uh, he said, addicts, also, addicts often have to take heavier doses to get the same thrill as time passes, just relating those points to one another where uh, people are always looking for more and more and more from the next you know, earnings uh, in, in terms of the forecast, did it beat or not. But, but Brendan, I mean, wouldn't you agree, like if you really like Microsoft, are you going to rush out and buy more just because they beat their earnings by a penny? I mean, that was probably a made-up number anyway. Yeah, so and that was kind of the point that Jason had was that um, like 69% of companies since the beginning of 2009 have beaten the analyst consensus forecast. Uh, in fact, 78% did in the first quarter of 2018. So just, just to show, uh, he went through the, the rest of his post to basically explain that like 
the analysts in these companies are often like pretty much just like in bed with one another and they they manipulate the uh, the forecasts so that the company has a very good chance to beat it because they know that that will affect the short-term stock price or at least it has in the past and and Jason kind of wondered like is that is that game up like are they gonna have to continue like making it like are they gonna have to beat by more because people now know that they game the system to beat by a penny or something stupid like that right um, are they gonna have to continue massaging the numbers over and over and over yeah and and so uh, basically I mean th- this last little blurb here um, that I want to share I thought was basically what to take away from it um, Jason said that Wall Street's conventional wisdom holds that when a high percentage of companies beat expectations, the economy is unexpectedly strong or the bull market must have further to run. Don't fall for that. Uh, With more than two-thirds of companies reporting positive earnings surprises every quarter, all you should conclude is that they are adept at conniving with the analysts who follow them. Uh, So just like understand this incentive structure and realize that like if Microsoft beats earnings by one penny, like it was most likely manufactured and it probably it probably isn't going to have much of an impact on the stock price at all but like we've been trained to look for these things this is what the media is talking about like the blurb on the bottom line going with the ticker symbols is going to say that microsoft beats by a penny and we're going right. to talk about that as if it's like a triumph of mankind when in reality it's maybe it's just manufactured like, news yeah like it doesn't matter yeah so it also kind of makes makes at least a guy like me it makes me stop and think like wow when these companies miss earnings mm-hmm. wow yeah they did they didn't buy enough donuts for everybody <laughs> that's and Jason kind of makes that point too is like like you know maybe so if if it doesn't matter if they beat by a penny like you know take that as you will and try to understand this relationship but but also understand that if if they miss after trying to manufacture uh, an earnings surprise to the upside with the analysts and they can't come through on it, then there may be, you know, some bigger problems there because they know, they know well beforehand what number they need to come in with to beat the uh, consensus estimate. It would be an interesting study to see. I'm just spitballing, but it would be an interesting study to see what would happen uh, if a company missed on their earnings, like a total whiff, what happens over the next year, two, three with the stock? Hmm. You know, do analysts stop covering it? Does the stock start a slow descent into, you know, a crash landing somewhere? I'm not sure. It's uh it's interesting, but I know that like one of the one of the explanations given for like the value premium, aside from you know the the guess that you're taking more risk because these are riskier, beaten down companies. But but the idea is that they're um, overreactions to things like negative earnings. So like you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater, and it's like yeah, so maybe this company's missing earnings, but like in the aggregate, these companies are probably too beaten down to be. And the assets, a, the assets may be worth more than the right. The they're price undervalued, the stock. and that's that's like one of the things people will return to with with value investing. That makes sense. Is that people over overreact uh to to the downside and you know that's more or less what you're getting paid to accept as a value investor well thanks for tuning in to episode 220 and uh we appreciate you coming to join us and we look forward to uh speaking with you again on episode 221